Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love, and right now is no exception. We've heard you listeners and know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times, so that's what we intend to do. Today, we'll see if King Arthur's pineapple upside-down cake was a right-side-up success and introduce a Canadian heritage pie with the perfect name for our theme this month, flapper pie. Then we'll stop at the Intimidation Station to discuss custard and meringue so you can bake along without breaking a sweat. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. when we were doing our mini segment last episode in episode 176 about the food history and the food trends of the 1920s, we read a very interesting, very delicious fact that in the decade between 1920 and 1930, personal consumption of ice cream in the U.S. grew by two gallons per person. It went from one gallon to three gallons by the end of the decade. And We didn't follow up on it at the time, but I thought I heard a little chuckle from you. (laughs) You did. (laughs) Wondered why that made you laugh. I was thinking to myself, and here in this period of isolation, at least in our household, personal ice cream consumption has grown, (laughs) who knows, perhaps to five gallons. Surpassed the 1920s for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. I wanted to share the best ice cream recipe that I made here at home during this period. Oh, yeah. And it came from Michelle over at the Brown Eyed Baker, mm-hmm. and it is called peanut butter and jelly ice cream. Ooh, that sounds great. Oh, my gosh. We love peanut butter ice cream in this house. Tell me more. Yeah, it is my husband's favorite, so I was really happy to make it. It was one of those times, too, where I was trying to use my ingredients, and I had some heavy cream Mm. with no plans for it, so I really wanted to use it. The recipe has a cup and a half of whole milk, a little bit of cornstarch, a half a cup of creamy peanut butter, some salt, one and three quarters cup of heavy cream, Mm. two-thirds a cup of sugar, and then one and a half cups of jam. Oh, Basically, you're making your peanut butter custardy base, and that, you know, set up very nicely and was delicious. Yeah. And then when you go to churn it, you add the jam in toward the end, so it's more like a swirl throughout. I also threw in some chopped peanuts because I like a little bit of crunch in my ice cream. Yeah. This ice cream is such a hit. I love her header notes on the recipe. She says, if peanut butter and jelly is your jam, this ice cream is for you. And I'm here to say, yes, PB&J is my jam. (laughs) Okay, so a couple of questions. What kind of jam did you use? I used raspberry because that's what I had. Oh, that's my favorite anyway. Yum. (laughs) Yeah. And then did you do this in your electric ice cream maker or did you do a soft set just in the freezer? Yeah, this recipe is designed to make in an ice cream maker. And so I used my Cuisinart ice cream maker and it was ready to go in the freezer. I made the custard base and then Mm -hmm. it says that you want to cover and refrigerate it until well chilled at least four hours or overnight. Mm -hmm. And I did do the overnight chill. I like doing that with my ice cream. Yeah. You know, I had that canned caramel from 
the Samoa bars that we did at the beginning of this month. And of course, one of my all-time favorite Mm -hmm. ice creams, which you guys are probably so tired of hearing me talk about, (laughs) but here it comes again, (laughs) is that no-churn caramel ice cream. And that's one that you don't have to to do in the electric ice cream maker. Right. But you know, Andrea, I also feel like we talked last week about the cast iron skillet that we make our pineapple upside down cake in. And that's one of those kind of hero appliances or gadgets that you can get for your kitchen. Yeah. I would like to go on record as saying, I think my ice cream maker falls into that category. Some people might say, oh, how often do you really use it? But I really do use it for better or for worse a lot. And homemade ice cream is just so great. I do as well. And especially during the summer when it's warmer, that's more appealing to me. Mm -hmm. I think I only paid about $35 or $40 for mine. It's the Mm -hmm. Cuisinart model. Me too. It's probably, gosh, at this point, maybe, maybe even 10 years old. I've never had a problem with it. My only tiny complaint is that you do need to keep the freezer portion in the freezer. And so it takes up some freezer space or you have to plan ahead because it does need to be frozen for at least 24 hours to really get that ice cream frozen enough. Yeah. And I have often wondered if I should just go ahead and invest in another freezer base because then you could kind of rotate it out. I mean, it's one more thing to keep because mm -hmm, that is another possibility you can just buy the insert part of it at least for the Cuisinart we have the same model so interesting yeah you might not think that that's an appliance that would get a lot of play but I'm here to tell you it certainly does well and my neighbor has the more expensive Breville brand oh the type that doesn't require the freezing where you could just make batch after batch Mm -hmm. and I borrowed his once because I thought well I could actually use this I want to see if it's really worth it and I liked the ice cream from my Cuisinart Mm -hmm. better it's just really simple it's like an on-off switch and then, you know, you put your mix-ins toward the end of the batch, and it's not complicated, and it really makes superior, superior ice cream. So I think it's a great thing to ask for if you have a birthday coming up or if you want to treat yourself to some great homemade ice cream this summer. It's a worthwhile investment. I agree. And there ends our PSA on the necessities <laughs> of your home ice cream maker. <laughs> the moral of the story from Preheated this week is make more homemade ice cream. So... <laughs> Well, Andrea, we may be saying make more of the original pineapple upside down skillet cake, which was our bake along this week. This recipe came from PJ Hamill, our friend over at King Arthur Flour. Now, here's a funny thing that happened. (laughs) For the first time in preheated history, I think, moments before we sat down to record this episode, Andrea, you and I realized we followed two very similar, but ultimately different recipes. That is true. A little of investigation will show that there are actually two recipes on the King Arthur site. Yeah. So the original article that we were using was American Baking Down the Decades from 1920 to 1929. And at the very end of that recipe, there is a link to the original pineapple upside down skillet cake. And that is what you used, Stefan. And then right below that, there is a link that says print just the recipe. And so that is what I used. And as it turns out, those are two different recipes. Yeah. Not hugely different, especially in technique, they appear to be the same. But the ingredients are a little bit different. And so we did want to call it out because at least in my case, I had one thing happen that I think maybe you didn't have happen because of the indifference in ingredients. So let's go ahead and talk about how this cake turned out for both of us. Yeah. And, you know, the biggest difference of this cake, Andrea, 
And I've made, I don't know how many dozens of pineapple upside down cakes in my time. Yeah. It was the skillet, obviously. It is made in a nine inch cast iron skillet. That's a real workhorse in my kitchen. I was happy to make a cake in it. That part of it was just absolutely fine and really fun and really added to the vintage and heritage nature of this cake. Skillet cakes were really, really popular. You heard us talk about that last week when we were doing some history of 1920s food. So this just kind of carries the theme of our month that step further with the pineapple upside down cake, which was also created in the 1920s. The only other thing that really set this one apart for me was that PJ has you separate the egg yolks from the egg whites and then beat the whites separately until light and frothy. And Andrea, I took this to mean almost to soft peaks. And I want to just mention that I did that first because I needed to use my KitchenAid stand mixer and then get the whites out of there while I assembled the cake. So I moved my step three up to the top. Okay, interesting. Well, I had a helper for this recipe. So my daughter actually jumped in and said she wanted to help me bake this cake. And that was really fun because we were using my mom's cast iron skillet, as I mentioned in last week's episode. And so we were kind of talking about her while we were doing it. So it was a really great experience for both of us. Oh, that's so nice. I just used my vintage egg beater for those egg whites. And my daughter actually did that part and thought it was really fun. Oh. And I was thinking to myself, well, what would they have done in the 1920s? That's what they would have used. So absolutely. I felt very authentic. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. However, you need to whip those. Just make sure they're coming to nearly soft peaks. And we're actually going to talk about that in a similar vein a little bit later on in the episode. But that's really the only thing that stood out to me as a big difference, Andrea. Otherwise, you're going to be putting together the dry ingredients of flour, baking powder, and salt, beating your butter till soft and smooth, and then adding in your sugar. That's where you add your egg yolks, scraping down the side of your bowl. I was doing all of this in my KitchenAid, adding the milk alternately with the flour mixture. Then you're folding in your beaten whites. If you're not familiar with folding in, It's not a big deal. What you just want to make sure is that you don't deflate all of the air that you've put into the whites. I use a silicone spatula and then almost dramatically, I feel like I scoop it from the bottom and kind of go through the top and scoop it. And it does take a while to incorporate. You don't want to rush it. But there's a reason that she's calling for those whites to be airy and add some fluff to this cake. And you don't want to deflate all your hard work, essentially. Yes, I agree with you. You definitely want some volume from those whites. Yeah. I wouldn't say we beat ours until soft peak stage. You know, the instructions say until light and frothy. And so ours were more like that sort of foamy, bubbly look as opposed to soft peaks. Okay. The difference in our ingredients here from using the two different recipes on the cake side of things, mine called for two cups of flour and one teaspoon of vanilla Whereas it looks like yours called for one and two-third cups of flour and one tablespoon of vanilla. And how happy was I to see that tablespoon of vanilla? (laughs) That just gave such a lovely, lovely flavor. You know, you might say, oh, that looks like a typo. It's not. You just are going to have a lovely vanilla cake here. I loved that about my version of this recipe. Yeah, and I, gosh, I hate to admit this, but, you know, I don't measure things like vanilla. (laughs) Oh, ever? No. I mean, (laughs) You know, I just feel like I sort of eyeball it. So I eyeballed a teaspoon and then I tossed in a dash more. So for all I know, I got closer to a tablespoon just like you did. But the reason I did want to bring up the difference in ingredients is that even after folding in my beaten whites, Mm -hmm. my batter was so thick. 
Was yours really, really thick? No, it was definitely not runny. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not like a pancake batter. But, you know, I think I think in step nine, it's kind of telling. She says, spoon the batter on top. And you've, at that point, put your pineapple and your sugar and your butter in the bottom of your skillet. And then you're spooning that batter on top. You can't say just pour it out of the bowl. And no, you really do have to kind of work at it and smooth it out. So it's thicker, but okay. I wouldn't say it was unreasonably so. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I I did that correctly, just because it was definitely thicker than any other type of cake that I've ever made. But I Mm -hmm. agree with you, the fact that you're spooning it on as opposed to pouring it, I think does mean it's supposed to be that thick. Yes. We had a difference in our topping ingredients as well. So my recipe called for two tablespoons of butter and a cup of sugar, whereas your recipe called for four tablespoons of butter and three quarter cup of sugar. It did. And you know, Andrea, that's really my only small quibble with this recipe that I used because number one instruction is to lightly grease a nine-inch cast iron skillet. Why am I greasing my skillet when I'm then going to put a quarter cup of butter in it? That was just... (laughs) Yeah, I decided that was important for the sides. I did to the sides. Exactly. Exactly. So you want to get those. But yes, then you're melting that, that butter, sprinkling over your brown sugar, arranging your pineapple rings. Now my can had eight rings, so I was able to do seven around and one in the middle, which I thought looked so beautiful, and then smoothing that batter on top. As I'm putting that batter in, Andrea, I don't know if this happened to you since you had a little bit less butter, but the melted butter was kind of seeping up the sides a little bit. I was just trying really carefully to cover the butter as much as I could with the batter, but still some kind of seeped around the edges. I didn't really have that problem. My issue, I think because I had less butter and more sugar, and it doesn't say to stir it. It just says melt the butter and sprinkle the sugar. And my daughter was doing this part and she is a new baker and so she's following the instructions. So I didn't say to her stir it. But once I had my final result, I wished I had. Because When we flipped that cake out, we had just some chunks of hardened brown sugar that weren't incorporated with the butter. Yeah, gotcha. Either I would up the butter and downsize the sugar to the recipe um, that you used. I think that might be better. Or I would just stir it. So it was more of almost a, a nice caramel as opposed to, you know, some chunky pieces of brown sugar. Exactly. And I mean, you just have nailed it. What you're going for there is kind of that homemade caramel. And a nice thing that happened, I thought, was that butter that had kind of seeped around the edges made a nice caramely crust almost around the sides. Mm. And that turned out to be my husband's favorite part of this cake, actually. (laughs) So perhaps that's by design that that that's doing that. So mine baked for 35 minutes in my fan oven. It was definitely done. I did the toothpick test after that. Here, I said I only had one quibble. I have a small other quibble. You remove it and then immediately while everything is still really hot, you loosen the edges and then you carefully turn the cake upside down onto the serving plate. Of course, it's an upside down cake. Andrea, my skillet is so heavy and I was so nervous about getting this out in one go. I, For me, that's a two-person operation. The skillet is very heavy. It is smoking hot. You do not want it to go anywhere but that platter you have prepared. So I called in my husband for reinforcement and we did it together. I don't know. Did you did you successfully flip by yourself? 
You know, I did successfully flip by myself. This nine inch skillet is the lightest skillet I have in my cast iron collection. And I think it probably depends on, you know, the thickness of your skillet. Okay. If I had had to use my, I have a 10 inch, a 12 inch, and a 14 inch, Mm -hmm. any of those, I agree with you. I would have been hard pressed to flip that on my own and balance the platter and all of that. Yeah. But I was able to do that without any problem. And it did just pop out quite nicely. Yes. No sticking at all. So I was really happy with that. And then instead of baking the cherries in with the pineapple, you then press the cherries atop the warm cake and you can serve it warmer at room temp. I served it for dinner that night, so it was at room temp. And this is just a delightful cake. It's a winner with everyone. It's so pretty. Yes. You don't need to frost it. So it's just pretty as it comes out of the skillet in this case. As I said before, my daughter especially is a huge pineapple fan, but I just love the caramel flavors. I love the very Mm -hmm. deep vanilla flavor of the cake itself. It's a classic and an icon for a reason. In fact, Andrea, when I sent you my picture of this cake, I think I just said iconic. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I know. I had the same thought. I did have a slice when it was warm out of the oven, and I thought it was so good. And then we had it later that night. Mm -hmm. Everyone in my house liked it. Calling back to our increased ice cream consumption, I can tell you that it's fabulous with a little bit of toasted coconut gelato alongside. Ooh, Ooh, that's more (laughs) tropical again. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. This cake was a huge hit in my house. It was so delicious. And I thought it was good the next day as well. So I don't think Mm -hmm. it has to be warm out of the oven to retain just that good caramely yummy flavor. Yeah, it's a real beautiful cake if you've never done a pineapple upside down cake. But even if you have, it's kind of interesting to put it into this skillet and really harken back to the the heritage of the cake. But yeah, it was a great bake. I loved it. I also got a good review from my neighbor. I shared some with her and she told me she ate it as a coffee cake with her morning coffee and that it was quite good that way as well. Any time of day. (laughs) Breakfast, lunch, or dinner, it seems to be filling the bill. (laughs) Well, Andrea, when we link to this particular recipe, we will call out specifically which ones that we both did in the show notes. So listeners, if you mm-hmm. uh, are looking for that. But yeah, that's a that's a first. I have a feeling that there was the original recipe and then she updated the recipe. Oh, yeah, and maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for exactly the reasons we talked about. And so I think what happened is that I used the original and you used the updated. The updated original original. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what type of experience we have with this week's Bake Along. It is called a flapper pie, and it comes from all recipes. Now, Stefan, any idea why this is called a flapper pie? Indeed. Yes, thank you. This is a heritage pie from Canada, and we actually talked about this a long time ago when we were talking about regional desserts. And this comes from the prairies of Canada. It's actually from the 19th century, but it was rebranded and reborn into popular culture in the 1920s as a flapper pie. So how can we pass this up during our Roaring Twenties month? It is a graham cracker crust with a vanilla custard filling and a meringue topping. Oh, it sounds so good. Andrea, pies are something that we committed to making more of throughout the year instead of having a dedicated pie month so we're keeping our commitment to that and you know for folks who are a little hesitant about pastry never fear this is a graham cracker crust so you can make your own very easily you can also buy those prepared and again also it doesn't use any flour from your pantry in this one 
Yeah, and it does have a really nice custardy filling with three cups of milk and three egg yolks. But the nice thing about this with those three egg yolks is then you save those three egg whites and that's going to be your meringue topping. So no waste. No waste. It's a one page. I cannot get graham cracker crumbs, so I will be substituting rich tea biscuits, which I think are the closest that I can find. And, you know, whizzing those up in a food processor. You could also bash them with your rolling pin, depending on your rage baking for the day. Yes. I think this is going to be really nice. I have not made a vanilla cream pie ever. I mean, that seems so obvious, but... Yeah, I know. I'm very excited about it. When I first was looking at the filling ingredients, I thought something was maybe left out because mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I had it's that same thought. Very straightforward. I've done a yeah. banana cream pie or a coconut cream pie or a chocolate cream pie, but I've never done a vanilla cream pie. And so, yeah, it's just got the milk, the white sugar, the cornstarch, of course, to thicken, and then the egg yolks and a little bit of vanilla, and that's it for your filling. And we're going to talk in just a minute about doing a custard and a meringue. So, We will let that lie for now, but hope that you bake along with us. This is from All Recipes, a baker named Linda A., the flapper pie, and we will link to all of the recipes we've talked about today, both versions of the pineapple upside-down skillet cake from King Arthur Flour, as well as the flapper pie from Linda A. at All Recipes in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 177, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, we just introduced this week's Bake Along, the flapper pie, so we know that many of our listeners right about now are thinking, that sounds delicious, but there are at least two reasons I'll never try it, custard and meringue. And we never want listeners to skip our Bake Along because they're unsure of a method, especially when, in this case, it's two techniques that will really open up your baking world and are at heart actually really easy. So let's pull into the Intimidation Station. and slay our custard and meringue demons once and for all. Okay, let's start with custard. In the flapper pie, it's an egg and milk-based stovetop custard. And you'll see this method a lot when making a homemade pudding, pie filling, and even homemade ice cream. Essentially, you combine dairy, which could be milk or cream, a thickener, usually cornstarch, and sugar in a saucepan, and warm them over medium heat until the sugar is dissolved. So far, so easy. The next step, though, is the most important one, and also the one that novice bakers are sometimes eager to skip. It's called tempering, and you've heard us talk about it almost since episode one. It's a crucial thing to do whenever you're adding eggs to something that's already hot, so that the eggs don't warm too quickly and scramble. You take a little of the hot milk mixture, and you slowly whisk it into your beaten eggs or egg yolks, then repeat a few times until those eggs have come up to a warmer temp and you can add them to your saucepan of custard without fear of curdling. At that point, you'll bring the whole mixture, which now includes your eggs, to a slow boil and let it thicken, which usually only takes a few minutes at most. If you're making a chocolate pudding or custard, you'll often add the chopped chocolate to the mix now too and let it melt. Off heat, you'll sometimes stir in butter or a flavoring like vanilla. The final step, which Stefan religiously, and I almost always do, (laughs) even when it's not specifically called out in the recipe, is to strain the custard through a fine sieve. This catches any bits of eggs that may have scrambled, even if you were careful, and smooths the entire thing out. It only takes a few more minutes, and it makes for a superior custard. Usually, at this point, you let your custard cool to room temp in a clean bowl, and then place it in the fridge to chill. 
I like to put a piece of cling film over the top of my custard so it doesn't form a skin while cooling, but that's totally optional. Some people really like eating that thickened part, and if that's you, enjoy your cook's treat. So now that you're a pro at custard, let's tackle that pie topping, meringue. It's got a fancy name, but basically meringue is essentially two, sometimes three ingredients. Egg whites, sugar, and sometimes cream of tartar. And some people also like to add vanilla or another extract too. The first and most important step is when you separate your eggs. Now, if you're lucky, you're using the yolks in your custard like we'll do in the flapper pie. Yolks and whites separate best when eggs are cold. Andrea, I separate eggs by going back and forth between the cracked shells into two bowls. How do you separate yours? Yeah, that's what I do too. It's what I find the easiest. I read once about a method of separating the white through your fingers instead, and I found it messy and kind of gross. <laughs> However you tease apart your yolks and your whites, you want to be sure that absolutely no yolk gets into your white. Not a speck. If it does, it's nearly impossible to rectify and will inhibit your eggs from whipping. At least, that's what the experts say. Stefan, I'm here to tell you, I've occasionally had a tiny bit of yolk drip in and it hasn't caused a problem. You may just have to beat a little bit longer to get those stiff peaks. So if it happens, don't panic. You can either put aside the tainted whites for another use and start with a fresh egg, or you can take your chances like I do and see if it still whips up okay. Though eggs separate best when they're cold, egg whites whip best at room temp and in a stainless steel bowl. The bowl of your stand mixer is probably ideal. Glass also works, but plastic bowls should be avoided because they retain the taste and the fat of other things that you've made in them, and fat will be the death of your meringue. I like to wipe out the bowl of my KitchenAid with a lemon slice prior to whipping meringue because it gets rid of any lingering fat and or flavors that may be left behind, even after a thorough scrub. Okay, now you're ready to whip. Put those whites into your bowl, snap on your whisk attachment, and set the mixer to high. At first, it will look foamy, but miraculously, in a few short minutes, the whites will start to grow and turn bright white and thick, the soft peak stage. Imagine a curved dollop of whipped cream, and you'll get the idea. Some recipes have you add sugar or cream of tartar, which works to stabilize the egg whites too. Stefan, do you add yours at the beginning or when you see those soft peaks? I do it when I start to see the peaks, and I sprinkle a little sugar in at that time. I once read that adding it all at once doesn't allow the whites to whip as high, but since I've never done two batches of meringue side by side to test that urban legend, I can't say for sure. <laughs> like so many things we do in the kitchen, it's probably at least a little bit superstitious. At any rate, one way or another, you'll reach the soft peak stage and just a little later, the stiff and glossy firm peak stage. A fun but potentially risky way to test this is to take the bowl out of the mixer and turn it upside down. No movement, you're done. <laughs> I'm not going to be doing that, but I do like to go by the height and the glossiness of the peaks. And this is something you'll get adept at recognizing the more you make meringue. You want those whites to have grown in size to such a state that the entire bowl of your mixer is nearly full. If you're covering a pie, like you are this week, you'll cover your warm pie filling all the way to the edge with your meringue and bake or broil the topping to give it that distinctive golden brown color. Covering a warm filling ensures the meringue won't weep or shrink and pull away from the pie edges as it chills. Watch carefully and don't risk the broiler method if you're using a Pyrex pie pan. You can also bake the pie at a lower oven temp for a few minutes, or if you're lucky enough to have a kitchen blowtorch, run it back and forth over the meringue until it's colored. Whichever method you choose, know that meringue goes from beautifully browned to burnt in seconds. 
Meringue pies are best served cold, so now pop your masterpiece into the fridge and sit on your hands until it's time to eat. And while you're waiting, how about checking out other custard and meringue desserts we've made over the years? Season 4 Blue Ribbon Frontrunner Lemon Sour Cream Pie from Taste Better From Scratch blogger Lauren in episode 173, Butterscotch Pie with Curry Crust from Epicurious in episode 63, and my Key Lime Pie with Mile High Meringue in the Recipes tab of our website, preheatedpodcast.com. And with your meringue mastery, you're ready for a marvelous plum meringue from episode 92 or an aquafaba pavlova which uses chickpea liquid in place of egg whites, but follows all of the tips we've just covered. It's also found in our recipes tab. And of course, we hope you bake along with us and tackle this week's flapper pie to put these lessons to good use. If you've still got questions, drop us a note at host at preheatedpodcast.com and we'll do our best to answer them in an upcoming episode. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning. And next week, we'll see if Flapper Pie is our latest heritage favorite and do a preview review of a dessert that's assembled, not baked, and may help us clean out our pantries as the weather heats up. Thanks so much, as always, to Anne-Marie Russell for providing our theme music. You can find more of Anne-Marie's music on Amazon and iTunes or at annemarierussell.com. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, Subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please rank, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Stefan, we got a couple of great new reviews this week, and I just will call out one of them. It comes from Lauren in New Mexico, and she says, I love this show. It is very well produced and lasts the perfect amount of time. I've listened to the entire back catalog because I've enjoyed it so much. I love that the hosts always select recipes everyone can access. Oh, that's definitely our goal. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, very nice. Listeners, our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones. We hope our show has provided a bit of respite when you've needed it most. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Oh my god. The only motorcycle in London right now is going past my house, of course. (laughs) 